in a series right now called Weighed Down, and a lot of people, they make some kind of New Year's resolution about weight loss or exercising more, and so we're sort of playing off of that. Last week, we talked about being weighed down with complacency, but this week, probably a struggle you may not have put down, it's probably not a New Year's resolution, but weighed down by fear. Fear is an interesting uh, weight. We see this in Hebrews 12 where it says, since we have such a huge crowd of men of faith watching us. And I like this. This is the New Living Translation. I really like how they take that original manuscript and they, they translate it like this. From faith watching us from the grandstands. Let us strip off anything that slows us down or holds us back, and especially those sins that wrap themselves so tightly around our feet and trip us up. And let us run with patience the particular race that God has set before us. I like this because it acknowledges the fact that as Christians, as believers, we are watched. Our lives are watched. And we really are running a race. There is a finish line. Uh, When we talk about eternity and heaven, that's a real thing. And as we run towards that, our life is a race in which we are continuing to grow and lift up and be all that God has called us to be. And there are things that will weigh us down and pull us down and keep us from our best in which God has for us in this world. And fear, the weight of fear will absolutely shackle itself around you and stop you from finishing that race well. These fears can look like a lot of different things. You may have a fear of a disease. You might be going through a sickness, going through a really difficult time, um, but you have a serious fear. These are real fears of what God is doing. The fear of a dying loved one, the fear of that wayward child, the financial fears. This is always weighing on people constantly. The fear because of spiritual insecurities. You study the word. You get into the word. You spend time with the word and you still are struggling with understanding how God is bringing that together and what you're supposed to do with it. Those are spiritual insecurities that weigh us down in fear that I'm not quite getting what I'm supposed to be getting out of this word. The fear of the broken marriage, et cetera, et cetera. The fears are very real. What we're facing are very real. And so we are having to move forward because God speaks about this subject so clearly that these fears must be directly dealt with. He talks about these, these fears in uh, Matthew. And when he's talking about them, he's using these points of, of uh, these. Let me back up because before I go forward, I want you to personally write down your three fears. And before we address where God is going to deal with these fears and make us move in front of it, you have to personally put yourself into this message. So in your notes, pull them out. There's three lines at the top. It's going to take you a second. But I want you to think about what are the top three fears that you're dealing with right now And I want you to write those down. You'll find that the notes this week are really more about you kind of telling your own observations and following along, not so much fill in the blank, but you addressing things that are going on, what God is teaching you in these different parts. So you really have to do this first part. And I put three in there because the first one probably pops in your head pretty fast. I know that I've been dealing with this. I've been thinking about for a long time. It's an issue that I'm facing right now, and it's huge. But the second and the third one, I want you to go deeper. Try and really dig down and say, what is two and what is three? And so when you begin to pull up those deeper ones, I think God's going to address those in a new way. 
So pull all those three out and go ahead and write them down. I don't see a lot of you writing, so I want you to do this part. And as you're writing these down, I'll tell you some of mine. Mine, I have two really, really foolish ones. The first one is I have this weird thought every time my wife is driving with our three kids. And I have this thought that I'm going to lose all four of them at one time. And I, I, I say it's weird because it's been for years. We've been married about 10 years. And I've always had this thought. So I don't put much stock into it because the first couple of times I called and said, hey, you all right? I had this sense. That's a premonition. But now it's like I'm just an idiot because I continue to have this thought. And I have to capture it and say, God, what is the worst thing that could happen? They're all in heaven with you. That's good. That's a good thing. They're in heaven with you now, and I'm excited for that. What am I going to do as I move forward? And I walk myself through that process. Okay, what does that look like? Talking myself off the ledge of worry. And as I walk through that process, I think, okay, God, you're in control. And so for me, I have to capture that fear. And it's so silly because I have to do it all the time. Capture that fear and say, that is not going to control me. God is in control, and I trust his future for me. The other one is even uh, more ridiculous. I have this deathly fear of needles. And I, I got this pop-up book, and the very first page, I was looking at it, opens up, and bam! Like, ah! Throwing the book back. What they're actually showing here is dentistry. And although I'm not a huge fan of my dentist, it's not my fear. I, I can deal with the dentist. But it reminded me of the needle fear I have. And here's my thought. When I, when I see a needle coming, which isn't very often, I don't have to have that many shots. I think the last one was for a mission trip, in which they're injecting me with the disease and with the land I'm going to, which is part of the fear because I feel like he went into the back alley and he picked up this needle off the ground. He hit like 100 other people and then he's putting it into my arm and I sense in my, my, my being that he's sticking AIDS or something inside of me in that moment. I can feel it going, and it's so strong that my head starts just racing, and it races so much so that I have passed out many times because I can't control my mind and stop it from going, no, he's a, he's a licensed doctor. I'm sure this needle was pulled out of a package. I don't know, but I'm just, it's so irrational. It's so ridiculous. And yet it has controlled me for a long time. And I've had to try and capture that fear and say, no, God is in control. When God speaks about this subject, here's what he says. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life, even needles, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What, when we think about this life, it kind of reminds me of that, that show, uh, doomsday preppers, because I think about uh, what they're doing. I watch this show, and I, I have to laugh out loud. I, I literally laugh out loud because they're preparing for, you know, the zombie apocalypse that is certainly around the corner or the alien invasion. And when I think about life, we are probably about, you know, one disaster away from being in a real issue with water and food and all those things. We live in an earthquake area, so yeah, there could be a devastating earthquake, and we would be in a lot of trouble. But in that moment, when that happens, I don't know if living in a sea container for the next three months with eating food that has been packaged, that looks so disgusting, and having barrels full of ammo is really what God meant on being prepared for our future. 
You know, I know what the ammo is for, the zombies, and I'm, I think that's very, very important. But when God speaks, he pushes us another direction because he says heaven could be closer than you think, and that's a good thing. But heaven is still a very far-off sort of, um, I want to say a cop-out, to think that I'm prepared for heaven. Because what God says, I've also prepared you for today. I'm also taking care of you today. And so as we look at these scriptures, what is he saying? He's saying, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? When we start to let fear and worry overtake us, what happens? WebMD writes about this subject, and WebMD is never wrong. It says, it interferes with your appetite, your lifestyle, your relationships, your sleep, job, performance. You begin to overeat, uh, smoke cigarettes and alcohol and drugs all at the same time. Then you have difficulty swallowing, dizziness, dry mouth, and on and on it goes. You start to get really, really, you start twitching just from reading it. And it talks about how this fear and worry being in you causes the blood uh, to go faster or whatever it does. And this excessive fuel in your body, if you don't get rid of it, which is why exercise is good when you're having something you're worried about. But if you don't get rid of it, then all of this happens, and you have muscle tension and short-term memory loss. And if this continues, you will even have depression and suicidal thoughts, which is why I never read WebMD. I'm scared just worrying about the fact that I might worry about something. It's a, it's a real, live thing. And God is saying to us, what should you really be worried about when I'm taking care of you in all things, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothe the grass of the field like this, etc., etc., when I read this, this is one of the scriptures that I want to memorize, which you can already hear that I'm behind by one week and the stuff started the year. But anyway, this is one of the scriptures I want to memorize because when I read this, I think this is an incredible verse. Because when I look at flowers, I observe them as an incredible beauty that comes up, lives for a second, and then dies away. And God seems to have spent so much time on something we might come across. We might see this. And we might be in a field somewhere and we just happen to notice this lily and look at it and go, wow, look at what God did with that. How much time he spent on this flower. An article I just put on my Facebook. If you're not my friend, add me and look at it. It's all about snowflakes. And snowflakes, I'm, I'm reading this article going, this is incredible. It's incredible the beauty in a snowflake in which we can't even see. I mean, we, we're seeing it now with microscopes going deep into it. And God made that so beautiful by chance that someday with a microscope, we would see the beauty in the snowflake. And as I read these scriptures and I think about these thoughts, how much more is he taking care of me who is created in his image, who he loves and adores, who he called his masterpiece? The lily wasn't his masterpiece. We are. Is he not going to take care of us? You guys look nice. All of you dressed up, you did your hair, you got your makeup on, way to go, guys. Some of you, you, uh, you didn't, but that's okay. We have the modern-day church, so you can come as you are. <laughs> but 
When you look at a lily or you look at a flower, how much time God spent with that, how much more does he care about you and love you? He goes on, don't worry. Don't worry than saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What I love about God is he's not some confusing, Confucius-type guy giving you these huge quotes that we have to then say, what does this mean? And then we put our own religion around it and then get followers to follow us. He doesn't do that at all. He says, you know what? Look at the flowers. You see how beautiful they are? I care about you so much more than the flowers. And I created those in mere seconds just in case you might see them or the snowflake or anything like that. And he says, here's what's cool. He doesn't just leave it at flowers. He then takes these three scriptures and says, let me make it even clearer. I'm going to put it into a three-part sermon for you. So pastors really love this. I'm going to put it in a three-part series. Seek my kingdom. Seek righteousness. And don't worry about tomorrow. How clear he could make it for us. How clear it is for us. So when we have fear and worry in our life, you know what you need to do? Seek his kingdom. What does seek his kingdom mean? When we think about seeking his kingdom, it can sometimes feel like a Where's Waldo book because God says, I am all around you. I'm in everything. You're going to sense me. You're going to feel me. And we go, okay, but where are you? And it's like, I'm right there. You got to find me. He doesn't say it like that at all, but we feel like that. We feel this struggle of, okay, God, you might as well show up. If you're in everything and you're always around us, why not just show up? I don't think people would accept you even if you were standing up here because the pride is still there so strong. But I think God is saying something like, you know what, I, I did show up once and you put me on a cross. So I'm just kidding. I don't think he says that, but it's something like that. And he goes, this time, this time, I'm not going to just show up. I'm going to be in you and you are going to sense me and feel me. And what you need to be doing is seeking my kingdom because when you're seeking my kingdom, when you know me, the next time I'm going to be lifting you up and bringing you to me. It's going to be very clear. And there's going to be many that miss that point. But he says, if you will seek my kingdom, I will lift you up and you will spend eternity with me. Do you want to be in that group that's lifted up? Then seek his kingdom. The group that he was talking to, they wouldn't have asked about this. They would have already known because they had just, they were walking with Christ. The believers were following Christ. The disciples were with Christ. And they had just come off this mountain. Uh, We call it the Sermon on the Mount because when God, or I should say when Christ was up there, he talked to his disciples in one of the longest discourses of the Bible in which Christ is speaking and says, he doesn't say anything about salvation. He doesn't say anything about eternity, what he says is, this is what my believers should be doing. This is what I expect of you. This is how you seek me. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. That's that feeling you have inside of you, that hole that you feel that you know there's something supposed to be in there. 
that feeling that I am so struggling because I know there's more to this life. I know there's something more here, why I was created and what I'm supposed to be doing while I'm here. That hole is that poor in spirit feeling which you know you need him in a deeper, passionate way. You know there's supposed to be something there. And you feel poor because it's not quite right. And so you begin to take your life and Fill it with Christ because you are poor in spirit without it. And as you fill it up, you're growing closer to the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We read that and think, mourn, why would I mourn if I have God? But that mourning is when we look around and we say, it's broken. Something is broken My God came for the brokenhearted, and we look around and we say, I can see the beauty. I know it is here. I can see it in all of this world. It's a beautiful place. It shouldn't be filled with news every night talking about murder and death and all the destruction. It shouldn't be filled with me worried about my stuff being stolen or being in an alley and being beaten up. That something is broken from what you created, but I can see it. I can sense it. And I mourn because I know what it's supposed to be. And I can feel what it's supposed to be. I can sense what you created and we're not quite there. And I mourn because I want it to be there so badly. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I like the word meekness more than gentle, but both of them say the same thing. You can be gentle. You can be meek because you're so confident of who you are. You know that you were created by God. You know that you're a masterpiece of God. So you love people. You care for people. You even let people do what they do because you are safe in who you are. You understand who you are. So you can be gentle and meek. doesn't mean you're kicked around by the world, kicked around as a Christian. It means you understand so confidently of who you are that you live at a different level. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you're ever questioning what it means to be a Christian, what it is, is your appetite changes. The appetite of the world is for a lot of stuff, a lot of things, a lot of power, even love. The appetite is pretty strong. You are bombarded every day with the appetite of the world. When you become, quote unquote, saved, your appetite changes. And what you begin to hunger and thirst after changes. It's not that you don't still need to work and and climb and love. Your appetite for it changes in which God is in all those things. God guides your day. You begin to wake up thirsting, hunger and thirsting after God and wanting God to be in every aspect of the day, wanting God to be leading you in that perfect mate, in that perfect place, in everything. Your appetite has changed. That's what that's all about. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As we're seeking the kingdom of God, why would he not use the word grace? He uses it a lot of other places. We see the grace in which we receive heaven even though we don't deserve it. That's God's grace. Mercy is not receiving hell when we do deserve that. So he uses it as you are seeking his kingdom. The blessed are the merciful 
This is about those around you that are unforgivable. Those that have done things to you that you cannot forgive. If you're seeking his kingdom, that has to begin to change. Even though it is unforgivable, even though you can never trust them again, mercy is what God gave me. And because he has been so merciful to me, how could I not give that same mercy to others? That's what this is all about. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the singleness of purpose. You understand who God is. You want his glory above all other things. And so you are blessed with a pure heart that is seeking his glory and that singleness of purpose forever. Blessed are those peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers is a sense of seeking peace, avoiding strife and violence, avoiding the conflicts that are constant of every day. The peacemaker is seeking a different life because this is a short, short life here on earth. So why live a life full of strife and struggle? Blessed are those who have been persecuted. Now here's where we get to this, this end in which he says, if you are seeking my kingdom, if you are pushing fear behind you, why would it surprise you that the enemy wouldn't like that? Why would it surprise you that when you begin to step up and seek his kingdom on a daily basis, when you begin to start and end your days with God, the enemy will notice and will push back. And in fact, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. That means you're on the right track and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. He goes on, as you are seeking my kingdom, you'll become salt in this world. When I read to my kids at night, I, I, um, I tell them they can interrupt me. And they interrupt me a lot because there are so many analogies in the Bible. It's really funny. I didn't realize how many analogies, which are great for us. It sort of brings it together. But as soon as you say, and we're supposed to be like salt, they all stop me and go, I'm sorry, what? What do you mean we're supposed to be like salt? I say, well... Think about it. What is salt? Salt's a preservative. And then they say, what's a preservative? You know, well, it keeps things from going bad. All right? Let's simplify it down. You put it around fish and food and all these things. It's a great preservative and from keeping things fresh. So as Christians, we are preservative in this world. What would it be like without the Christian? It would be bad. It'd be really bad. And we keep it from going there because we stand up and we are strong. We are meek, but we are strong saying, God is still God. God still leads us, and we are that preservative in this world. What else does salt do? It creates thirst. We create thirst. We're the ones out there sharing about this incredible God who is a living water that will last forever and make you thirst no more. Are we out there creating thirst? Because salt does that. Salt tastes good. I put salt on most of my items of food. I enjoy salt, and how are we as Christians making the world a better place? Do we have that reputation of making the world better? Our history is, yes, the Christians and what they have done throughout history, there is time and time again of Christians making the world a better place. That is what salt's all about. And as I explain that, it's an incredible, incredible analogy. The only analogy that might be better would be light which is what he does next. He goes right from salt to light saying, you're supposed to be a light in this world. You're not going to hide that light. You're supposed to be shining out so everyone can see it. 
Does your life illuminate who God is in this world? As you're seeking his kingdom, it will do that. As you're putting fears behind you, moving past worry, and putting God first and seeking his kingdom, a light should shine from you and people should see it no matter where they are. Seek his kingdom. Then seek righteousness. Righteousness is about uh, your, your virtues. It's about a morally justifiable, upright person. And he really, he takes it up a notch when he goes here. And again, the people wouldn't have been asking about this because he had got off that mountain or he was coming down the mountain and he says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We sit in here, and you know what? We're pretty good people. You really are. You're really, you're good. I mean, you do think you're at church today. Oh, you should give yourself a hand just for that. There's a lot of people that aren't at church. It's a very small percent, and you're here. And you're serving. Most of you, I, I look around, I see all of you just that was a really oxymoron what I said there, but most of you are serving, which is really cool. So you serve, you're giving, uh, you're taking care of your family, you're probably making good decisions at work, trying to be an upright person. You are good people. That's fantastic. And here we sit, and God ratchets it up up here and says, okay, here's where I actually want you. And it's so incredibly high. Like if you even look at another woman or man and you say, God, that's an incredible creation that you have created. I'm just going to stare at it for a few minutes. You know, that's how I do it, right? It's a beautiful creation, God. Then you've committed adultery. And we go, you know what? Uh, that's a bit strong. That seems a bit strong. Maybe you could clarify, God. And he's like, okay, I'll clarify it for you. If your right eye makes you stumble, go ahead and tear it out and then throw it from you. For it's better if you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Thanks for the clarification, God. I read that and I can't, I, surely he can't mean to cut my arms off and my eyes out. I mean, David Hopper, that's me, isn't saying to cut your arms off and cut your eyes. If you come next week and you're like that, I'll get in a lot of trouble. So don't do that. But I also don't know how bad hell is. I've read about it. I've studied it. I can show you all the scripture about it, but I still don't get it. An eternity in hell, an eternity separated from God. I don't quite understand that, but God does. And I hate to say this, God loves you a lot more than I do. And so he's up there saying anything, anything to keep you from hell. I love you. I want to spend forever with you. So anything to keep you from that. David Hopper's trying not to get sued. I'm trying to keep you from hell. He loves you so much. And he says, seek righteousness. As you seek my kingdom and you seek righteousness, you won't have to worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Those fears, those worries, the struggles that you're facing, they're very real. And at this point in the sermon, I'm sure there's people saying, thanks for the pep talk, but it doesn't pay my bills that are crashing over me. I'm going to lose my home, going to lose everything. Thanks for the pep talk, still have that tomorrow. It doesn't bring home my child, doesn't bring back my child, it doesn't save me from what 
whatever disease I'm facing, but thanks for the pep talk. And I can understand that. I get that. Because those are real fears. And I don't know your specifics, but God does. God cares deeply about what you're facing, which is why he tells us to focus on these things, why he tells us to focus on him. But those fears are real. So I want, with this last point, I want to do something different. I want us to be a family and to pray for each other. The band's going to come back up. They're going to play behind you. And what I'm really calling you to do is as family members, which we are a complete family in here, to begin sharing with each other our fears. If you came as a family, then I want you to go ahead and as a family say, these are what three things I wrote down. This is what I'm dealing with, which might be a big step in the family to open up and say those things. Do that and then pray for those. If you came as a single person or you're just here alone today, you're also in an incredible family. One of the best. Love this place. And I want you to look around and see other single people and say, that's my family. Go over to them and then open up with, here's my three deepest fears of my life. It's a great starter for a conversation. That is weird. I know that. But I want you to do it anyway and then pray for each other. And then after you've prayed, last service I saw a few people didn't do it. I'm going to come and get you if you don't do it this time. So get together, pray, and then I will come up and close the service. God, you are so good, and we do trust in your plan and your future. We ask for your will to be done in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So this pop-up book, I know you guys can't see it. It's like snakes and stuff. The last one is the fear of dying. And you can't see, but there's people staring down into the grave, and you're supposed to be in the grave. And I look at that one, and I say, I, you know, I really don't fear that one. Uh, I kind of fear if it was a bullet and it's going to hurt for a second. I fear that part of it or the crash or whatever, however that ending goes. But dying, that is gain for me. I can't wait. I can't wait to spend eternity with God. But a lot of people, that's a huge one. I mean, it's the big one at the end of the book because a lot of people fear that final moment, the finality of it and what happens next. So as I close in prayer, I want to pray because I'm sure some of you may have this fear. The fear of not knowing what happens next. You, you, you feel like I've done certain things, but I'm not sure. I'm hoping, but I'm not sure I will spend eternity with God. And I want to be sure. I want to be sure in that final moment that my next moment is seeing Christ in front of me. 
And if you're here and you haven't made a decision like that, I want to pray for you. With every head down and eyes closed, uh, if you're here today and you're not sure that if you died today, you would spend eternity with heaven, I'm not going to pull you up front, I'm not going to do anything weird or embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. Will you quickly put your hand up and say, that's me. I do have that fear and I would like prayer. Just quickly put it up. Anyone else quickly put it up? Amen. God, I lift up these hands, these people specifically. I pray, God, that you would give them a peace in knowing that what you said is true, that when you died on that cross and then rose again in three days, you conquered death. And in that conquering of death, you became our Savior over it. And as we make you Savior and call on you as Lord, that you have given us a promise that we will spend eternity with you, and then we seek your kingdom in the rest of the days of our life. God, that is an incredible gift, and Lord, we ask for that, and I pray you would give those that raise their hand the peace in knowing that that has happened and that is true, a confidence in their walk with you forever. And I pray for all those and all the fears that were lifted up to you, God. I pray that you would, your will will be done and that we would move forward knowing that you take care of tomorrow. God, we give you all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.